who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Welcome to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in my office today is the full complement of the Election Shock Therapy team. We have Sam Mulberry, Andy Bramson, Mitchell Crum. And Sam is not at a meeting. How and I don't happen? have one to go to. <laughs> Why? How? <laughs> because Mitchell and I gave a test on Monday. I'm worried about you. <laughs> so, like, I don't have. What's funny you say that? So, because I honestly have nothing on my calendar today other than this. So I didn't. I stayed home and graded this morning instead of coming in. Okay. And when I walked into the office around. Um, We should should say, what time are you usually here, Sam? uh, Around 7. There you go. Okay. Um, The two other people that work in my office looked at me and said, we were worried. (laughs) (laughs) I came in at 8.30. Like, (laughs) so, see, when you're a creature of a habit, if you break that habit, people get worried. Yep. Yep. True. Um, and uh, for those of us, for those of you who are following, know that Bethel University is a Christian university. Happy Ash Wednesday! Wait, it's not Happy Ash Wednesday. It's, it's just Ash uh, Wednesday. Somber Ash Wednesday. Is that yeah. is that better? Sure. Um, it is Ash Wednesday. Yeah. We we we're entering into Lent, um, the Lenten season. Um, gentlemen, are you observing? Are you giving up anything for Lent? Yes, um, I'm giving up. Um, Adding sugar, like added sugars to stuff. I always want to say, I don't want to say give up sugar because, of course, it's almost impossible in our society. Right. Almost everything to is actually sucrose. give up yeah. sugar. I mean, I'm still going to eat bread, which still has sugar in it, but yep. um, but sugary things, I'm um, yeah, giving that up for Lent. Okay, is this is this why you judge Mish so harshly for putting like is, I'm not judging sugar him in his tea? I, I was just jealous <laughs> impressed with a pile yeah. of he's already, of he's, already he's already he's, he's already angry about the about the sugar. It's quite a little pile, and I feel like I can yeah. start a fire with that pile. So. Ah, man, man, the judgment continues. Good grief. Yeah. No, I, I do have my. I, I have to. You have know, you committed please. to forgiving Andy for Lent? Is this that is true? <laughs> there we go. I'm committed to forgiving to forgiving others for go. judging there me for go. my sugar. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Hey, I'm from Senegal. We we're all we're okay with lots of sugar. <laughs> more <laughs> is more. How about you, Chris? Are you? I so uh, for those, uh, I grew up um, in the Mennonite Church, the Evangelical Mennonite Church, and uh, give, Ash Wednesday itself was not a particular thing we observed. Uh, giving up something for Lent was also not something we observed. So this, I have done this a few times in my adult life as I've come to know a little bit more about some other uh, uh, church traditions. And I think, and this actually reflects on what happened last night, I think for Lent and season, I'm going to give up Twitter. Hmm. Um, I, 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 I realize some of the things that Twitter does to me when I read it, uh, <laughs> the echo chamber effects it has on me. Hmm. I don't need it for my job. Um, I think I'm just going to just gonna close that app, or delete that app from my phone for the, uh, for the next 40 days. Hmm. Okay. See, it's interesting because I don't I, – I, Famously in our friendship, have a Twitter account, but have never tweeted and don't really literally never don't really look at it. <laughs> and so what's funny is so I did last night because I'm trying to, you know, prep for the show. Sure. And uh, I realized the people that I follow on Twitter, like some of them, it like they were tweeting last night, but it had no relationship to the speech. Oh, so it's like, oh, wow. oh so Twitter yeah. works. Also, if you just follow people who don't care about that stuff like you could <laughs> yeah. just you could just adopt my twitter for for lent and it would just be like comedians making non-political jokes i can't even imagine what that world looks like yeah it's it's, it's very even the comedians i follow were tweeting about this oh sure yeah thing. like if you have your your pat noswaltz or someone yep, like that exactly. you're gonna get exactly yeah, yep. yeah yeah pete holmes less on the uh less political less political as oh, it turns out yeah. 
Uh, although uh, his new podcast, he has uh, Reza Aslan on, so that'd be kind of fun mm. to listen to. So a little political there. I will say, in terms of just answering your Lent question, I am the opposite of you, which is I grew up in a heavy Lenten tradition mm-hmm. known as Roman Catholicism. There we so, go. Like, so, we <laughs> so we actually possibly we, the most Lenten tradition. That's right. So I am actually fascinated by, um, and I think this is probably um, intellectual Christians mm. how they tend to. Not everyone, but I think you reach a point in life where you tend to be drawn to the things that your tradition is like the opposite of your tradition. So, okay. so for me, like I actually find, and and I'm gonna, I'm really honestly gonna attribute this to like sort of a, 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 a an understanding of grace that like I actually actively don't don't participate in Lent in part in, because, in that traditional way. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, be, because it's like, cause like that was hammered into me as a kid. Mm, right. um, and I, the problem is then uh, maybe revealing too much about myself, but like I am the most, one of the most like guilt riddled people in the world. Like I just mm. assume it's my fault. <laughs> like the thing that happened at the Oscars on Sunday, I kind of feel like part of that was my fault. Yeah. Like that's just how I'm wired. <laughs> Do you work for Price Waterhouse? Yeah. So, no, so my point is like, like I don't need a special season to make me like that's think funny. about that stuff. Like that's kind of every day. I, what I need is a season to be like, you know what? Just relax a little bit. Like, so <laughs> not that, I mean, that's not what I'm doing for Lent is letting myself off the hook. I'm just, I'm just sort of saying like, I, I'm not going to drill down on this even more. That's right. right. So. right. No, that makes sense. And I grew up, my story is sort of the opposite. I mean, I grew up in a tradition where we didn't do Lent. Um, and I find it useful because otherwise it seems like all seasons are the same season. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having seasons like Lent and Advent where you, you specifically reflect on these things, um, then does highlight for me, at least the, the grace of sort of, Ordinary time, right, sure. or Easter season, um, when you can rejoice in that fuller way, and it just makes it it makes it stand out more. Um, it gives a sequencing, but but yeah, I totally get that. So. Well, it's got like theological, Chris. How, how, we, how are we transitioning from this to Donald Trump? Theology no to Donald Trump. What, is the, so, what do you think Donald Trump's giving up for? Lent? Donald Trump mentioned God in his speech. Um, can we get Donald Trump to give up Twitter for, for a Lent too? What's that? <laughs> we get Donald Trump. You cannot give up Donald Trump for Lent. No, no, no. Can I get Donald Trump to give up Twitter for Lent? Oh, can you give? <laughs> that would be awesome if you could give. That might be good Twitter. for the Republic. Actually, <laughs> it would be good for oh, so many things, but except for Twitter itself, probably. Which okay, would so suffer. What can? Can I mean, this is this is a weird inroad in, but sure, we need some inroads. Because this one is so well tried to begin uh, with. Right. Well, I mean, you you mentioned, and I mean, are are we we going to assume someone listening to this probably listened to the speech? Or Uh, or are we going to recap the speech? We're not going to read the speech. uh, I actually toyed with Andy doing the dramatic reading of the speech, and we decided that that would be a waste of time. Okay. Well, I will say when when my wife um, was was, uh, gone last night, she was at church painting. They were painting the youth room, and she came home. Okay. I was picturing, like, a a canvas. (laughs) Yeah, like a landscape. No, um, and, and... when she came home, the speech was just ending, um, and there's one piece that I rewound for her because I because because I just wanted to get her thoughts on this, and this actually mm-hmm. ties into Trump mentioning God and things like this, which mm-hmm. is the one biblical passage that he quoted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I kind of just want your thoughts on that as the way that that quote was used. So, so the quote was, uh, um, and he's got, it's, and he's it's got a from John 15. Here. Yep. Um, yeah. So the greatest love is to lay down your life oh, for right, your friends, the, right? Yep. And then he sort of spun that into lay down your life for your country. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts. The Bible <laughs> teaches us there is no greater act of love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Ryan laid down his life for his friends, for his country, and for our freedom. We will never forget him. I mean, to our allies who wonder what kind of friend America will be, look no further than the heroes who wear our uniform, et cetera, mm. et cetera. And then he w- went into his foreign policy thing about 
um, sort of the, the nature of our leadership in the world mm-hmm. and what he look, thinks that should look like. So, so as Christian mm-hmm. political scientists and yes. thoughtful Christian people, thoughts on that? Yeah. Let me let me let me say, say two things. One, uh, one of which I think is relatively unimportant. One of which I think for me is very very important. Uh, the unimportant one is this: uh, there there is a connection between the laying down down one's life for one's friends, and something that we know about service members, which is that uh, what drives service members and what what motivates them to commit incredibly self sacrificial acts is not particularly love of country. Mm-hmm. Uh, psychologists and studies going back to World War II show us that this is really about bands of brothers kinds mm-hmm. of effects. Uh, cohesion within the group causes people to do incredibly self-sacrificial things. So that might have been true for um, for Ryan as well. Sure, and I'm not um, saying, but 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 I guess my question is, it's not it's not the, uh, the 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 Navy SEAL who made that connection, um, who made the connection to country. It was the person giving the speech. Absolutely, and right. so that's why I think this this rings from a political science level a little bit hollow um, in term, uh, but not just not just hollow. I. Uh, on this podcast, we try to uh, relate politics and political mm-hmm. science especially uh, to politics to sort of be not just pundits, mm-hmm. but people who have some expertise in the field and know some of the research to be able to comment on this. That said, uh, this is going to sound a little more pundity than I maybe usually go down. I found this to be incredibly disturbing. And the mo- and for a speech that was otherwise quite normalizing for Donald Trump, the extended uh, discussion of of Ryan and his wife, who was there, this clearly recently grieving widow, and uh, using this as a prop and a set piece to distra- to to equate his sacrifice with why everyone needs to be nationalist and and, and fall in line behind the Trump administration was um, at best disturbing and quite possibly for me much worse than that. Mm-hmm. I, I was yeah. uh, I was sickened by it. Except I would just say, I mean, like I I, I agree with that. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I always find these kind of things disturbing, but I don't also. I also didn't think um, it was wholly unusual, and I didn't watch the speech. I read it, so maybe that that contributed to my. It was a very reaction. powerful visual element um, to it. There was a sure. almost minute and a half standing ovation for his okay. sobbing wife in the stands. Wow! Um, yeah, and that makes it with the camera right? tight yeah. on with her. With the camera the whole... on, yeah, wow. tight on her, yeah. mascara it, in her face. Because we, we've had that kind of thing before, right? Where you bring in, I mean, people. Oh yeah, who are, every president brings in props. Who are, right, but but people who have lost loved ones, right? Um, like I'm trying to remember which ones Obama brought in, but uh, but he he did that, and so I guess in that sense, when I read it, it didn't strike me in the same way it struck you. But but I also did not watch the visual of that yeah so it, it was that, it was long it was painful um, and it felt yep, misused yep. no that makes that makes a lot of sense but i, I mean that's that's my take i don't yeah. want to yeah. um that was my emotional reaction right. to it right and i right. you know other it, yeah. it might have been a very very good use of political theater too you, you know one of the things yeah. to think about too is we might compare this um and, and maybe just get your thoughts on this to uh present to the democratic uh, convention when the Khan family came in yes um, right and we're discussing yes. their, mm-hmm. their their son mm-hmm. which of course Sort of led to the opposite reaction by President Trump. Instead of celebrating um, the death of, uh, um, of, of right. a uh, service member, in that case, he was actually basically attacking the parents um, of the of the lost service right. member. So one of the things to think about is sort of what. what but I guess just to focus on kind of the, the theater of it mm-hmm. is: was there a significant difference between what the Democrats were doing at their convention there yeah. and what President Trump was doing? I, I don't know about the meaning of the significance, but it's one. But but is it different that the cons spoke as opposed to? Were this is trotted true. out. Yeah, this is true. So yeah, yeah, so I guess I guess that would be pretty significant. Yeah, that mm-hmm. they're the ones who are actually mm-hmm. telling their story instead of President Trump kind of redefining it or using it for mm-hmm. his purposes. Right, right. I mean, I I actually say I generally just don't like the use of props. I get it; it works. It's emotionally effective. It's good theater. 
and and from that perspective, I think what Trump did, and again, I didn't see that, but my guess is it'll work, right? I mean, like it'll it'll turn off people who don't like him, but it'll it'll you know it, it's going to work with his base, I, I suspect, and yeah, probably with a certain number of people who are um, sort of open to being persuaded on him. So I mm-hmm. think you know, in that sense, it's probably effective, but. I just I don't love the, the you, well. Whole you can't argue with the grief of a widow. So even right. Trump's exactly. strongest critics can't right. can't attack that. And and, exactly. and Trump himself got into the probably the most significant trouble of his of the whole campaign. Yeah. Well, that's not true. He got into trouble all kinds of times. But uh, <laughs> but when he got into a fight with the Khan family. Right. And right. I, to Mitch's point, I actually I'm uncomfortable with both. I'm uncomfortable with the use of the Khan family mm-hmm. too. I'll give it a little bit more credit because at least there he uh, Mr. Khan had the agency. Like he had the yes. he he volunteered yes. to speak. He difference. spoke on his own behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I suppose Ryan's widow could could have declined to show up at the State of the Union, but mm-hmm. um, but I was I felt incredibly bad for Mrs. Khan, uh, this 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 woman who stood beside her husband and was clearly grief stricken, and right. um, later on in interviews said that you know she supported the decision to speak, but right. seemed visibly uncomfortable at the time, and mm-hmm. uh, I was troubled by that incident too. So yeah. I, I guess I would I would say both yeah. of these incidents are, are are really troubling to me. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it, and it just suggests I mean like that the, the suggestion seems to be you you should make decisions about you know how you think politically based on the emotions tied up in one person and right. and let's be honest i mean the president has to make hard choices and people are going to die sometimes and in in the midst of those and you know i mean like to su- suggest that this is why we're doing what we're doing right is because of this person is just seems it seems like emotionalism um and it doesn't seem really terribly helpful but it, no, it, as theater it works I mean, as theater I, it's that's, great that's but it's also policy by right. anecdote and that's really problematic right and exactly I, and, and i guess getting back to i think your earlier points too i think one of the things that uh is perhaps more troubling about this one as well is, is trying to tie this directly to the biblical passage about laying right. down your life for your friends right. right um and you know historically speaking of course not all christians have seen laying down your life for your friends as being you know, we've just been discussing this in CWC, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sam yeah. and I write, many people felt like laying down your life for your friends was actually an act against the state. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. that passage was actually instructing you to be a martyr and to resist uh, right. even military service itself um, to the point mm-hmm. of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of opposing the states. And that's how yeah. historically right. many Christians interpreted that that uh, that passage there. So really the opposite of what President Trump was trying to draw from it last night. Right, and that's right. exactly why I wanted to play the, the clip for my wife because she's somebody who has real issues with um, – when we when we tie church and state together too mm-hmm. much and that and 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 there was there was if you were paying attention there was clearly a move of I mean even even from what you read there was mm-hmm. this move from for his friends for his country and, yep. you know and and if right. you're not if you're right. not paying attention you think well that he's he's quoting right. how the Bible says you should lay down your life for mm-hmm. your country mm-hmm. and right. well that's yeah you know sort of yeah um, I'm curious other okay. just you know we can maybe broaden this out like other big picture takeaways before we get into sort of specific. Let me offer a couple because I actually, I'm the playing the role of Sam Mulberry today and have to slip out a little early. (laughs) So let me offer a couple thoughts that struck me as I was reading this. I mean, a lot of it's boilerplate Republicanism, right? I mean, like this sort of, you raise the um, defense budget, right? You're going to enforce laws. $54 billion, right? Which is, to be clear, only 3% more than what Barack Obama himself had ordered. Barack Obama was, was was a friend of the military. Yeah, I mean, and that whole argument that, you know, the military has been defunded is just sort of, kind of yeah, it's kind of silly. I mean, like, our, yeah. our military is so um, well-funded compared to any other we military spend more We spend more than the next seven countries combined. Exactly. So, um, anyway, all that to say, like, there, a lot of those are sort of boilerplate Republican positions. We're going to, you know, do tax 
a reform that's going to reduce taxes, be more business friendly, yada, 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 that kind of stuff. But there were a couple of things that really struck me as being a little bit different for Republicans. Um, so one has, was the position on um, foreign policy. And I'll just sort of lay this out. Maybe you guys can um, talk about this after I um, depart here. But uh, it seemed like he's Republican in the sense that he does want to work with partners. He wants to have a very strong military. He wants to um, you know, sort of, you know, take a strong position in the world, but he's also taking a little bit more of an isolationist position um, than sort of Republicans have in recent times, right? And talking mm-hmm. about we'll respect historic institutions, but we'll also respect the sovereign rights of nations, right? Which could be taken yep. as a uh, a bit of a slap at not only Obama but also Bush, right? Yep. I mean, sort of saying, you know, how do you think about engaging the world? Um, he b- talked about sort of how we could have rebuilt at home. Um, if we hadn't spent all that money in Iraq and Afghanistan, which, again, is more of a slap at Bush than Obama. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of um, interesting. The other thing that struck me that's related to that is that he takes a pretty um, sort of throwback Republican position in a sense, right, in the sense that he's kind of protectionist. Um, and so by throwback to like the 1860s, mm-hmm. you mean? Yeah, <laughs> by 1860s. So he quoted Lincoln, right? And so yeah. Lincoln said we should protect our, our businesses in this way, right? We shouldn't just let these sort of goods come in. And so he's like, I'm in favor of free trade, but really fair trade, right? Yep. Which is sort of like, well, not really free trade in other words, right? So That's like saying, um, and, I'm saying with apples as long as they're oranges also. Exactly, right? <laughs> uh, and, and he advocated for something that sounded very uh, Lincolnian in a sense, but also very much like Henry Clay, who of course Lincoln was a disciple of Henry Clay. Um, it sounded like the American system, right? We're going hmm. to um, ta- put tariffs on goods, we're going to protect our industries here, and we're going to do massive um, internal investment, right? We're going to build up infrastructure here, we're going to spend money here, um, America American goods, American, you know, American sort of um, products, American people were doing this work. Um, so it was interesting. Like it was, it was a policy from an earlier era in that yeah. sense. Um, so that was th- those are a couple, I guess, of my big takeaways. The other thing that just kind of struck me is at one point um, I put down. Um, in there that it sounded almost like Herbert Hoover's um, chicken in every pot and um, car in every garage, right? <laughs> Everything that is broken in our country can be fixed. Every problem can be solved. Every hurting family can find healing and hope. So he didn't quite say, and there will be a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Well, and that's but actually a question that I had because, uh, you know, cards on the table, I don't watch a lot of political speeches. <laughs> okay. um, so, like, I don't – I couldn't say what other presidents – State of the Union – I realize this isn't State of the Union, but functionally. It's functionally. Right. Yeah. Um, are they? Do they? Do they always tend to sound like student council speeches like that? Yes. Where everything's going to. Okay. Yes. Okay. okay. I just wanted to know. And, and, and here's the. And, because, exactly, I want to know yes. if that's a criticism. And here's the letdown. Uh, they get worse as the presidency goes on. Yeah. Okay. Uh, usually, the first day of the union address or the first speech to Congress is one of the more rhetorically stirring ones. Okay. And then, and afterwards, they become just a laundry list of policy objectives. Yeah. Okay. Um, Stuff I'd like which, you to do yeah, that you're probably not going to do. Basically, the but... president's Amazon wish list of policies. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. presumably, it's spiking the football and then Amazon wish list, right? Yeah. Like it's here's all the things that here's yeah. all the wins we had. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And it, they sort of alternate between those two. Right. The wish list and the spiking. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> two uh two quick reactions here and uh one of them bridges off of the previous uh bit of about the Ryan family and um this is largely a piece of political theater. I want to get political science here for a minute. There are some scholars of political psychology who thought who believe that we can use the State of the Union Address as a way of sort of analyzing the thought processes of the president. David Winter at University of, was, was at University of Michigan um, was famous for this, taking presidential State of the Union Addresses and sort of analyzing them using content analysis of speech, of speech patterns. 
lot of people criticized this. Said, you know, obviously the president doesn't write this speech. David Winter knew that. That's not a, wasn't a surprise to him. But the uh, he argued that because the president has ultimate dict- uh, editorial control over the speech, that, that this still represents what they really think. I think this is problematic, and I think that these speeches, as as we saw last night, really don't rese- re- resemble how Donald Trump speaks and presumably how he thinks. What it does capture, by Andy, um, <laughs> uh, Professor Bramson has left the building. What I think it does represent is is, is political theater. Uh, a lot of this. Tell is, me what you what you mean by political theater, because I this is this is the area where I'm sort of most interested. I think. So this is a this is a well known trope in American politics. The president will give a speech to the joint section of Congress. There'll be a lot of celebrities there. This will be a time at which he knows he can control the news cycle for at least several news cycles. And so the the what he, and I say I'm using he for I mean referring to all presidents here. Right. They can use what they say to set agenda. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of it is not. Uh, a lot of it is somewhat disconnected from the reality of, of practical politics. It's about steering a news cycle and steering public opinion, and maybe maybe using the president's bully pulpit in a, to a certain level. Sure. But we have to know that as much as Paul Ryan was nodding and applauding behind Donald Trump, as soon as the speech is over, he's getting back to the business of directing Congress in the way that he wants to direct Congress, uh, whether the president wants to go those directions or not. So, for example, when Donald Trump uh, um, uh, promoted the idea of paid family leave, it doesn't seem likely that Paul Ryan is the kind of guy who's going to support something like paid family leave, although he was clapping behind him when he said it. And just to build off of that, I mean, another one of these sort of similar issues would be the infrastructure, yeah. where the Democrats were actually enthusiastic um, for applauding for this because this is something that President Obama also uh, wanted to do. Also, really wanted to do, um, and the Democrat and the Republicans were a little more tepid in their yeah. uh, applause. Yeah. And the oh, well, okay, no okay. more piece of political theater here. So we talked already about the the Ryan family, but the other um, really affecting, for good or for ill, trope that Donald Trump used was he brought a number of people whose uh, loved ones had been killed by illegal immigrants, mm-hmm. and I mean just to be very clear here. Uh, the, stat, the statistics widely show that illegal immigrants, people who people who are in the country illegally, are less likely to commit violent crime than the population in general. They are a safer population. That doesn't mean without with 11 million of them here, sure. there are going to be some people who commit violent acts. Sure. But by picking specific people who had had who were victims of those of violent attacks by illegal immigrants, he's creating a, a picture. This is the political theater I'm talking mm-hmm. about. And, and and what I find interesting, and again, this is this is probably super minor, and and I don't mean this as a. Um, this is going to sound like, oh, this is somebody who's never seen this before. I realize this is what they all look like, but I mean, if this is a if this is a presidency that's breaking norms, anyhow, like this is such a not ready for TV event. It's an awful TV event. I <laughs> know, <laughs> and, and I don't mean this in just like, man, this should be more entertaining. But but it what's weird is, and this they are all they're all like this. Like you don't get. I, well, my sense is like you don't get any momentum on what you're saying because there's this weird, there, this weird ceremony of, after sometimes almost every sentence, it's like we have to take a break so so everybody can stand up and applaud. For one thing, if every ovation's a standing ovation, then there are no standing ovations, right? right. Like 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 you'd think you could you could conduct this a little more if you have all if you have these yeah. folks on your side to be like, let's build to something and then yeah. have and yeah, then yeah. have like a real moment um, where. Even not even a real, it could be a constructed real moment. But the fact that like every sentence gets that, that it ends up, they they know it looks like an <laughs> SNL sketch yeah. when you're watching it, <laughs> especially because you have Pence and Ryan behind that. Yeah. Like like it just it looks silly. Like yeah. if you're gonna break norms, like break the norms of this. Like create better optics for this. So, and, and really as a way to 
to try to speak more genuinely. Because yeah. you could even use that text, the same text, but you could deliver it in a way that wasn't broken up by I don't know how many kind of ridiculous standing ovation moments. Unless, But I'm, here's the thing. I'm probably wrong. It's probably <laughs> effective. Yep. It drives me crazy. And it's not – and that's got nothing to do with the content of the speech. It drives me crazy when – Obama does that when when anybody like it I, I can't I, I feel like you get no momentum on a moment when you have yeah, a platform yeah, yeah. Okay, well, two, well two things first I think oh, I think Donald Trump agrees with you because uh, Barack Obama had this thing he would do when he gave State of the Union addresses when he would give a line and it would be a applause line he would kind of tilt his head and look just just over the horizon a little bit kind of striking this nice pose like yes yes that that was a good thing I said yep um, and, but Donald Trump uh, with, with especially early in the speech like when there was sub, like uh, an applause line would, would, would interrupt his teleprompter um, he would kind of scowl a little bit kind of like come on guys shut up I'm gonna get through this um, but wouldn't like the real like like swagger move be to walk in and be like you know what we're not gonna do that this time let me talk to you like that would be that would be amazing. And, um. but, and the thing is, like, you could arrange that. You could, you, yeah. Because theoretically, these people, like you said, if Ryan's going to stand up because the 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 theater of this says he's supposed to, even if he maybe not, like, you could get people on the same page and be like, we're going to try something really different here. I'm going to yeah. come in and say this, and we're going to, and, and, and here's the here's the points strategically where we want. Like, you could do that. Yeah. This is not that many people. Remember, though, I, 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 I'm going to disagree with you, I think, a little bit, because okay. I think there are ways why this is shaped up to be the way it is. Um, one, it is quite powerful to have you to say something and have a large number of people applauding. The first seven times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but the pro- but don't the- forget, like, most people don't consume this speech in one sitting. Most people see parts of this speech parsed out over the next week or so in news yeah. clips. So what they're seeing is one line followed by applause. Yeah. So what you're yeah. building here is a whole series of digestible news clips. So it's built. It's 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 built for something more like for cable news and Twitter, not for the not for the TV show I watched last night. I think so. Okay. But but in addition to that, you have to remember that this is a uh, partially a very uh, um, supportive crowd and partially a very opposed crowd. And if if the president walked in and said, you know what, we're going to do away with the applause. We're just going to. I just want to walk through the speech with you, and and I want I want to speak plainly to the American people. Let's make this populist. Like I just want to talk to the right, American that, people. That's, that's you all thinking, yeah. sit down and shut up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think. I think. I think that sounds like crickets. And in contrast to what typically happens, you'll have. Uh, it sounds like the room's against him, because that would. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. Uh, it's it's a weird. I, mean, it, it's weird. I guess it depends on on what matters. Does does the moment of last night matter? Or does the the clips that play out over the next, you know, uh, what's the shelf life on these clips, though? I mean, I would, I, I guess, I guess the clips themselves will probably, as, as Chris was saying, they'll, they'll be around for about a week, okay. give or take, and yeah. the, and so that has most, more of a punch it, 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 what, until what, something. What we know oh, really is that most people don't watch these speeches. Okay, nobody, nobody really watches these speeches. <laughs> so I, that, that's for, my demographic, right? Right. <laughs> okay. Except except for the handful of people for which it really. I mean, the networks don't even hardly want to carry them anymore okay. because the ratings are so bad and nobody watches them. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'm learning, guys. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so I think so. So I think Chris is absolutely right in sort of thinking about the rationality here, right? The rationality is you know that the way most people are going to see these is they're going to hear one or two sentences, you know, and then they're going to hear the applause, and you want to make sure that everybody hears everybody was applauding okay. the president. Last Which night. is also, by the way, why these speeches sound so badly written. I have to believe that there are excellent speechwriters on the part of uh, the Republican Party and excellent speechwriters on the Democratic Party, um, but even Barack Obama, who is an excellent orator. Um, didn't do a particularly good job delivering state of the union addresses, and that's because you have to build these speeches in such a way that it's it's you know it's a series of uh, 
35 sequential sound bites. Right. Could, I mean, we've we've heard uh, we've heard George W. Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, Barack Obama, even Donald Trump speak fairly eloquently at other points in sort of a longer, cohesive uh, argument. If you did that to say the Union Address, it wouldn't allow for these sort of pause lines or for these sure. sound bites. Sure. You would end up with something very nuanced, which wouldn't be very digestible by the media. Sure, sure. Okay. I mean, that, that, that actually that, – that, this is what I like about what you said is you gave me an answer to why does this look ri- – so it does look ridiculous, but I it looks so. ridiculous because it's not really meant to be consumed the way that – it's initially put out there. It's yeah. meant to be con- okay. Which is why. So the, how, the real, how, why how long does this tradition go back then? I mean, uh, is this is this a is this a a um, uh, electronic media creation? Like, if we were to go to the to the State of the Union address in 1880, would mm-hmm. we see something like this? Because no one's going to see this. I don't know about applause lines because that that would be a great thing to look at. Like, how many applause lines were in Eisenhower's speech? How many applause lines mm-hmm. were in Herbert Hoover's speech? Right. But what I do know, because I mean that would, the same theory would work for radio, right? That you could play a clip on radio. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Good point. So, like, going, you know, I do know the two things. I know that the State of the Union address has gotten longer over time. So, States of the Union addresses in the 19th century were, were quite short by comparison. Okay. And some some of our introverted presidents, I haven't checked on how many have actually done this, but I know Washington did. Uh, sent right. sent letters for States of the Union addresses to to Congress. You don't okay. you don't need to give a speech. You can just send a report. Sure, which um, makes sense in a world where there's not media in the same way. Exactly. Yeah. Could, well, you, could you imagine if uh, a really embattled president in their third year said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to send a letter. Yeah. <laughs> it, we, it's possible. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, there's, and there's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing. Sure. They're not, it's not dereliction of duty in any way. Um, in a similar way, I mean, this is a much more minor comparison, but I don't know if you saw the news that Donald Trump is going to not attend the press, the White House Correspondence Center. Mm-hmm. Uh, first person to do that since Ronald Reagan in '81, when Ronald Reagan was recovering from being shot. Um, I don't know before that how you know what the what the attendance sure. was like. But that's a pretty long stretch. It's a long stretch, yeah. and that signals a, you know a real deep division between Donald Trump and the press. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, I think I'm, I think I support it. Him not going to yeah. That? Why is that? I think that I mean this we're getting off to say the we're getting off of the speech that's last right. night yeah. here, but my feeling is that event it's a very comedic event usually they have a comedian of some kind host it mm-hmm. it's very funny the president gives up gets up and makes fun of themselves makes fun of the press um and it feels way too chummy our democracy is built on an oppositional press a press that's that's interrogating and and investigating uh the the, the powers of our government mm-hmm. and when they're all getting together and wearing nice suits and drinking champagne and laughing at how oh aren't we funny together i I don't like that. So do you? You just generally don't like that event, period, yeah, or or exactly. in this climate, you don't like that event. I yeah. think I think in either way. Okay. Yeah. Um, and the last two presidents, each in their own different ways, were very good at that event. George W. Bush was very good at poking fun at himself. Mm-hmm. He's an underrated comedian, I think. Right. Um, Barack Obama is actually stiffer than George W. Bush, but he, he was he was very he had very good joke writers. Right. Um, <laughs> do you and, think? Uh, I mean, because and again, this might just be the the world that I live in. Like, I have seen more. <laughs> White House correspondence dinner clips than State of the Union than paid attention to State of the Union. Yeah, stuff. because they're funny, they're entertaining. Yeah. Right. So, do you think that's a good move for him not to go to that? I think. I mean, I re- think regardless of what you think about the event, do you think like like him because because I mean they're still going to do the event and now they can do the we're going to bring on um, uh, Cecily Strong dressed as Donald Trump to play Donald Trump at the event and like they can do whatever they want. With sure, it then, they sure can. And know? the money and it's a fundraiser and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, I. 
I think it's a bad move for him because it cre- it reinforces for the press that he's an oppositional character. Mm-hmm. In some ways, it's good for the press because it galvanizes them. Sure. And it gives the, and 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 the event will probably be covered more than ever because he's not there. Sure. So they'll get a platform to talk about press freedom. Uh-huh. Want to do that? Okay. Without a rebuttal of some kind, right? Or, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, one other thing though is is um, when uh, Trump was at the. Or what was which? What's the uh, Al Smith dinner? Yes. Um, during the campaign, it was really kind of a disaster for him. He was not very good at delivering the lines, and not. And I don't know if it, he didn't seem. To, he, he seemed to have some jokes. wasn't gr- Wasn't great for Clinton either. Right. But. That's true. Um, but so so it really wasn't kind of his forum. So in some ways, it may just be a strategic move where he decided this didn't go well before. I don't want to try mm-hmm. to do this again. Um, and and not only that, I mean, I, I'm wondering, you know, you. On the one hand, we might say, yeah, it's bad for him um, because it's going to galvanize the press. But in other ways, it, perhaps it also reinforces the narrative he's trying to tell, basically. that. Yeah. Um, and in many ways, you know, you have to ask about bad for who. You know, one of the things that's been interesting to me, right, as you look at the polling numbers, there's a lot of polls that show that President Trump is very unpopular. He's much less popular than pretty much any other president at in this history, time in their presidency. At this time right. in their presidency, yes. right? However, with that said, he's still very popular among Republicans. 85% and, approval. Yeah, so he's so there's really is kind of this very sharp divide um, between how people who are Republican view him and how other people view him. And so I'm not sure that that's going to hurt him with the people that matter the most to him. I think, um, I think that's right. And yeah. Can I ask a question about that 85% number? Sure. How does that look compared to um, Bush 2000, Obama 08, um, at this point within their party, I mean, were, was there fifteen percent of their parties that didn't? No, it's a little low. Okay, yeah. so so like so, so like, you can you like can say 93 that ninety three or ninety four percent of right. Democrats liked liked uh, Barack Obama and and similar numbers for Bush. Okay. And so it's it's eroded a little bit, but okay. compared to the erosion within independent voters or you know right, voters- but but my I mean my this is one of those spinning numbers. Like mm-hmm. he's also low. Like that number is eighty five, and you say well eighty five is not bad, except that it actually <laughs> is bad compared right. to his predecessors. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I, I'm just curious because I don't. It's a like little bad. You hear that? I hear the number you yeah. laid out, but I don't have a reference point for that. Yeah. Okay. So we could. So we might actually expect in with a generic new president for that number to be higher than eighty-five at this point. Yeah, I'd say so. Okay. At least a little bit higher. So eighty-five is a good again, number. Again, eighty-five is not, but it's not awful either. Right. Right. But, 80, but eighty-five it's, is, right. is is solid. It's not as bad as his other numbers, but it's also not as good as his predecessors. Right. 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 Correct. Or right. where we might put that number. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, that's true. Um. There isn't. If you've noticed that we haven't been talking about policy in the State of the Union address, that's because there isn't wasn't a ton of policy. Is there usually? Um, that's what I didn't know too. Like, I was think that, generally, yeah. almost every time I've listened to the State of the Union address, right afterwards, the critics of the address will say there wasn't any specifics, which is generally true. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but Andy was right before he left. This was a this was a lot of boilerplate. There was some discussion of certain policies that the Trump administration wants to pursue. Uh, School choice through privatization, um, the uh, heavy vetting for uh, for immigrants, and America first. And this is a mm-hmm. slightly nationalist, more isolationist, more protectionist kinds of policies. Um, and um, very, to my, you know, because I'm the IR guy, so but very little about foreign policy. <laughs> there was some discussion about uh, the sacrifice of uh, made by uh, Ryan in the raid in Yemen, but. Russia was never mentioned. Mm-hmm. China was never mentioned. Uh, was the European Union mentioned? They got they they got a glancing call out to spend more money. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, the, the, yeah. He, there was one weird ad lib where he said, you know, America is going to sort of make its its participation in NATO contingent upon other countries meeting their benchmarks. And let me add some context to this. NATO has internally set a benchmark of two percent of GDP spending by a country on its military, which only five countries in NATO are actually meeting: the United States, France, Poland. I can't remember the. Um, if only we had like somebody who did like like IR stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, okay. I got three of the five. All right. But the rest of the countries in NATO are spending less. Your than predecessor NATO. got a better percentage than that, though, Chris. Just kidding. Thank you. Thank you. The uh, but the, the other rest of the countries in NATO are not spending even two percent. Now that, that's a, that's an arbitrary benchmark, and there's no legality mm-hmm. behind a two percent benchmark. Mm-hmm. But that's what Donald Trump is referring to. He's he's not suggesting that countries should pay the United States for being in NATO. That's mm-hmm. not that's what it sounded like. That's not what he means. What he means is they'll spend more on their militaries. So the United States doesn't have to spend as much of its uh, as uh, commit as much of its resources to protecting Europe. That said, we're going to increase our military spending by fifty five billion dollars if his budget works, and that's uh. That, that, that military has to go somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the other thing, based on that, uh, I, I saw this morning that Lindsey Graham, a Republican senator but a very vocal critic of the Trump administration, has said that his budget is dead on arrival in the Senate, that there's way too much spending in there and there's way too many cuts to um, uh, to health and welfare programs, even for Lindsey Graham. So um, I think he's got some work cut out for him to get that budget through Congress. Yeah, I think, I think that's one of the ways that we're going to, it just in sort of going forward, and, and in fact, I think that's one of the ways that maybe this state of the or, well, it's not the state of the union, but this the speech of the joint session, state of the union light, <laughs> state of the union light, yeah, uh, maybe may, um, maybe a little bit more problematic is one of the areas that President Trump has not been particularly done, done particularly well at is in getting an agenda to Congress and yep. influencing them. I mean, at just I don't want to. It's it's a little bit early to make this comparison, but it's starting to look a little bit like Jimmy Carter, who hmm. also failed to get an agenda to Congress within his first six months. Um, and that's eventually what led – that's what many commentators believe led to the unraveling of his presidency, basically. Interesting. He waited too long to actually get legislation before Congress, and Congress had already split into a bajillion different directions by the time he actually tried to unify them behind certain pieces of legislation, and it was just too late. Hmm. And, by the, and by the time that – by the time he actually got that stuff to them, um, it, they didn't have enough time to actually get it passed, and, and nothing got done. And his presidency is, you know, as we know, is generally regarded as a failure. So what um, accounts for not having that – Ready to go. Without thinking too hard about it, I would argue that um, he has been slower than most presidents in recent memory in staffing his departments. Okay. So uh, not just his not just his cabinet level appointees, but those people have lagged behind in getting their junior le- or their you know um, the people around them. Yeah, their assistant level uh, officers underneath them. So sure. assistant secretaries of state, um, assistant secretaries of defense. Uh, Mattis has famously clashed with the administration on getting the people that he wants. Uh, Bannon and Trump and Priebus apparently do not want Mattis to take anybody who signed the Never Trump letters prior to the election, and Mattis wants some of those people, and so that, that has been a slow-growing hmm. process. Yeah. Uh, obviously, we've had a change in national security, uh, the National Security Agency, uh, but uh, there's been a slow rollout here. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think it's partially that. I think it's also the fact that President Trump, during the campaign, most people who have taken over the presidency have some kind of governing experience. Yep. And they actually know what it means to make policy and send it out. And what we've seen with President Trump is he didn't really, you know, first of all, it's not entirely clear that they even expected to win. And so it's not clear that they had a lot of policies sort of in the bag ready to go right. um, before that before he was elected. And then once he was elected, it's not entirely clear that he or his team have much clear 
um, too, too much clear idea of exactly how to write policy. Hmm. Uh, and in fact, you know, even though they have now brought on in the cabinet a number of experts and people who can do this, right. you know, for example, when we saw the immigration ban, one of the things that happened was uh, the inner circle didn't really run it by those experts, and so that led to a disaster of a, of a rollout for that that's policy. How, that's, how that, that's what it made so easy to block right. it, legally speaking. And so, and, and so when we look at this, you know, when I think about you know, what the Trump administration is going to look like, and we want to think about you know, what, what kinds of policies are they going to, is he going to be able to tout in two years uh, as, as, as victories, you know, it's not entirely clear what those will be because he hasn't submitted those to Congress. I mean, you know, maybe maybe Paul Ryan will be able to save him here and be able to, you know, roll out some legislation that actually gets passed and Trump can sort of credit claim um, on, on those things. But yeah. that's not entirely clear. And Ryan himself has been quite embattled um, with the different factions in the Republican Party for the right. last uh, couple of years. So, you know, for example, just thinking about infrastructure spending. I mean, this yeah. is something that, you know, the Tea Party wing of the Republican Party yeah, the, has The Rand Pauls are going to hate that. Right. They, they are the libertarian Tea Party side of the Republican are just going to be that's a, that's a no go. And will any Democrats cross the aisle to support infrastructure spending if Republicans bail out on it? Um, well, see, the, the problem is, and this is where we get back to. I know Andy's brought this up before, but this is where we get back to the Hastert rule, right? So the Hastert rule for the Republican oh, Party says you don't bring anything to the floor that doesn't have a majority Republican support. Yep. So if a majority Republicans don't support this, and it's quite possible that they won't, um, then it won't even come to the floor, even if it could pass, you know, with Democrat support and, and Republican crossovers. Hmm. So. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see. This This is the thing that I'm kind of counting down right now. I'm, I'm keeping the closest eye on Congress right now. I'm wondering if President Trump is going to actually have any legislative victories to tout um, in, in a couple of years here, because right now he's been pretty slow um, on the uptick. And, you know, this this speech, I, I, I'll be honest, when I was looking for the speech, I was kind of wondering if this was going to be their big moment. Because it was kind of billed as that. There were a number mm-hmm. of sort of mm-hmm. lead outs that this is when he's going to talk about what he's going to do about health care. This is when he's going to talk about what he's going to do about infrastructure. This is when he's going to talk about what he's going to do, um, you know, about all these different, all, you know, about immigration and all these different issues. And, you know, as you guys already said, it was mostly just boilerplate. There was no specific policies. And this is where, you know, we've sort of been in this holding he, he position. Calls the repeal and replacement of Obamacare. But right. what it gets replaced with is kind of an open question. Yeah. And how quickly it gets repealed and replaced is an open question, too. Right. And, and of course, as we all know, the longer you wait, the harder all this stuff becomes. Absolutely. I mean, so this is the big problem. You know, the law, the. There's a reason that people talk about the first 100 days, and the reason is that presidents historically have gotten – if you're going to get major legislation passed, historically it has to happen in those first 100 days or Congress begins to pursue their own agendas and people start to get cold feet and it just doesn't go anywhere. So anyway, that's – looking at this speech for me, like my first reactions to it is, you know, this basically is President Trump continuing his holding pattern and mm-hmm. that very well could lead to nothing really getting done. I mean mm-hmm. – I guess the other thing, just I'll just sort of, if I can, please go for it. Go for it. Just yeah. continue to sort of like ISO for here. Uh, for uh, crumb here. Yeah, go yeah. For it. So, Turn it sorry. Out. Put it out the lane. The, 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 the one other little, the one other thing that I saw, and this, uh, I was so the New York Times um, several several weeks ago. I think it was Ross uh, Ross Douthat, Yeah, um, had a column. Basically said what's happening with Trump and one of the reasons we're so divided is there's two different narratives Hmm. that have been offered about what America is and what the American story is. Mm -hmm. And basically he said, you know, the the narrative that uh, President Obama and largely left-leaning Americans have been offering is basically the American story is this aspirational progress towards – um, cer- certain unrealized ideals, yes. right? So we have these unrealized ideals like liberty and truth and justice and things Equality. like that. Equality, especially, yeah. So, so we've got these ideals, and they're kind of spelled out in the Declaration of Independence. And the idea is America has never lived up to that promise mm-hmm. and that we need to continue to strive to try to get there. Yep. And so it's a, there's very much a focus in that sort of narrative on the failures 
um, in the American story of uh, along these lines and trying to rectify those failures. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have another story, and this story is basically the story that's been told more, you can think of sort of like Ronald Reagan talking about the shining city on the hill, yes. um, which basically says America actually hasn't been a failure. America has been um, a paragon of virtue and good things. And when I read Donald Trump's speech, one of the first things is, you know, he's, he, he opens up with this line, each American generation passes the torch of truth, liberty, and justice in an unbroken chain all the way down to the present. Which Kennedy said something very similar in his, one of his inaugural right. addresses. And one of, the thing, well, one of the things that's interesting about that sort of story, right, particularly juxtaposed right now with sort of President Obama's story, is, and I think Kennedy is a good example, right, to show that this is historically has been where Americans have been, mm-hmm. right? Most Americans have sort of seen themselves as this sort of paragon city on the hill type vision, yep. and that that has and that that story has been basically um, under attack, or it's been cracking. Yep. And that basically, President Trump is sort of the attempt to shore the up that story, even mm-hmm. though factually speaking, of course, there's all these problems with that story. I mean, have, I mean, the most obvious, of course, being slavery. Um, yes. But you can look at even more recent incidences uh, uh, that 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 show that that doesn't really work out. Um, so one of the things, as I was thinking about this, I was and I was I was hearing the story. You know, he talks about he, he just talked about unity, and then he talked about this different story. And one of the things that sort of struck me is, and I, I, I highly doubt that President Trump is thinking about the different narratives that people give. But you know, you sort of have an immediate attack on that unity, right? Where yeah. we have two different stories that people have been telling about what America is. And even though President Trump wants to talk about unity, it's a unity that isn't there if you're going to talk about this particular story. Yeah, I. I I'm curious to uh, um, see what you think of this because you you point out the, the parts of his speech that are about unity, but a lot of what Trump has been saying throughout the campaign, but even this speech too, is divisiveness and brokenness, mm-hmm. and you know his the theme of his inaugural was carnage. Um, right. So is that because is he sort of saying this this dream which we once had is now completely broken? And to to quote his uh, acceptance speech at the, you know, at the nomination, I alone can fix it. Right. You know, so like it was there, it's gone now. I'll bring it back. Well, it's also in this speech too, right? He tells sort of this, and I thought that actually, just to be honest, and I'll be a little pundity here for a second. There you go. The the biggest point that I sort of uh, I rolled out, which I uh, and 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 actually, I'll be honest, like. The, the military part of the speech, I mean, I agree it's egregious in terms of the potential abuse there, but mm-hmm. um, the part that really struck me as sort of the worst part of the speech was actually when he was sort of giving his, so, sort, of, sort of he was the hero of the story here, where, you know, you have, you know, m- and now tens of millions of Americans have turned out for, you know, to try to, to, try to repair this whole thing. Yep. And it's like, that is, so, I mean, to me, as, as somebody who's, you know, looking at this stuff, I'm just thinking, like, that is so corny. It's just painful. Hmm. Like, to sort of try to make you, you know, it's sort of sort of like, you know, there's, there's this line in a movie that I like, you know, where it's sort of like, oh, he's doing his own theme music. You know? <laughs> and you sort of look at that, it's like, you know, even though presidents always want to sort of credit claim and sort of toot their own horns, to sort sure. of make yourself the hero in an epic is a little bit um, beyond the pale, I think. And so, and sort of to look at this, I think that's the kind of unity he wants. Like he wants the, everybody to sort of unify and sort of see him behind as him, yeah. the hero, right? Yeah. And you know that that sort of misses the point, I think, of of of, of unity, right? Yeah. Which unity is coming together, not behind sort of an individual, but ideals. But anyway, but looking at that, one of the things, yeah. So, and, and I think getting back to your point, right? What about all this division, right? That he's talking about, and and the carnage. I mean, I think in his mind sort of the way back to unity is to sort of is, is is he's the aspirational character to sort of restore the city on the hill right right and that's but again it goes back to this unity based on this one story hmm. fascinating 
Well, I think we've mined this speech for about all we can. Um, I will say that I, I appreciate what we have done here, which we have avoided the dominant media narrative, which has emerged out of this, out of this uh, speech, which is that Donald Trump can be a normal Republican. Donald Trump can be presidential. Uh, again, this is political theater. Uh, this is not a campaign speech. He's speaking in a different way, and he's going to sound presidential. He's going to sound, quote-unquote, normal uh, in this context. It would be hard to do otherwise. So... Um, Thanks, gentlemen. Uh, we need to run now, I think. But um, on behalf of uh, uh, Sam and Mitch and, and Andy, uh, thank you for listening. You've been listening to Election Shock Therapy here at Bethel University. Go Royals. Go Royals.